All right, if you take your Bible this morning and turn to the book of 1 Timothy, we are going to read our section of scripture this morning and dive into this section of scripture that really talks about the correcting of false teachers and their teaching and with the emphasis of what does that look like to speak the truth in love. You're going to see that in the text that is before us before we get into the word and we ask, we need to ask the, the spirit of God to just continue to transform our minds and our hearts by his truth. So bow with me if you would, as we open in prayer together. God of heaven and earth, Lord, we as your subjects and children who have been called by your spirit, Lord, who had no chance or ability to choose, Lord, desire to be drawn closer and to become more like you and your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we open the text of scripture knowing this inspired truth and where it comes from. And we just ask, Spirit of God, please guide us and guide our hearts to appreciate the truth, to embrace the gospel, to remember it, to appreciate it, but not just stay on an intellectual level, but, but to use it in a way that transforms who we are, that just little bit at a time, you are, that you shave away who we used to be without you. So that, we, so that people and that you primarily, Lord, see the image of Christ in us. Lord, we need your help. As fallen people, there is no possibility of us doing this on our own. And so we humbly come before you and submit ourselves to the teaching of your word and to the work of the triune God. Lord, transform us this morning as we learn from the book of 1 Timothy. In your name we pray, amen. First Timothy chapter one this morning, I'm so thankful as Ben, uh, Pastor Ben brought us through this introduction and salutation that often gets um, uh, either glossed over quite a bit, but resonating with this, this reality that this grace, mercy, and peace and where it comes from and who offers it. And now... He moves almost immediately into a section of scripture that is, and he does this in a way that is very different than you'll see him write in other letters. Often Paul in, in letters to church, uh, churches in Ephesus at times and uh, various components of Colossians, uh, he will give this opening salutation and then he will go into some level of a list of pleasantries about how thankful he is for the body and, and how, how much he's praying for them. And, and he's just so encouraged with who they are and, and, and how he knows uh, that, that the, the gospel that they appreciated has, has now been known to people in the community that's around him. In 1 Timothy and in Titus, he almost skips the pleasantries altogether and he gets right down to business. Most commentators who understand the skipping of these pleasantries and these formal thanksgiving section of a letter recognize and would agree that he really sees a problem in the life of the Ephesian church and he wants to spend as much time as possible getting down to business about what is happening. And this raises the sense of urgency and it raises the sense of seriousness of the section that Paul begins to instruct Timothy with. Follow along with me uh, as I read starting in verse three. Here's what Paul says to Timothy. He says, as, as I urged you when I was going on, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to miss and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they say, what they are saying, or the things about which they may confidently assert. 
You'll notice this is the entirety of this section will extend all the way to verse 11. And this morning, I just want to park on verses three through seven. There is enough there for us to begin to understand about the seriousness of confronting false teaching. Now, I think it begs the question from each and every one of us as, gospel, as a gospel-centered community, this question, would you know, do you know the gospel enough to recognize if somebody was diverting away from the actual gospel? Has it permeated your understanding and you have trained your mind in the things of godliness and have embraced and, and know what the gospel is that you could identify if you sat in a Sunday school class or if you sat in a small group or if you sat in a Bible study and someone started to veer off away from things that were gospel-centered and gospel truth. Could, would something click in your mind to say, that's not right. That doesn't seem like the gospel that I understand. Paul is coming to Timothy now as his delegate of apostolic authority to come and say some very challenging things to the life of the Ephesian church. You know, Paul, Paul was not absent-minded or under, uh, a lack of understanding of the Ephesian church. When you look back in Acts chapter 19 and 20, you, you understand that the beginning of that church, two, three months he spent in the Jewish synagogue calling them to repentance and faith in the genuine gospel. The Jewish people, after three months of Paul debating in the synagogue and rehearsing the gospel, they said, we've had enough. We don't want it anymore. Paul moves to the, to the hall of Ty, uh, Tyrannus and he begins for over two years to reason with the people in Ephesus. Those who were outside the Jews, those who were Gentiles, reasoning with them from the sake of the gospel pleading with them that they would come to an understanding so that by the time you get to the end of Acts chapter 20, the totality of Paul's time spent in Ephesus was, was about three entire years of his life. Paul had something to say to this church because of the magnitude of the investment that he had made. And that investment was based upon the investment that the gospel had put into his life and the investment that Jesus Christ, who had changed his life, who had now called him to be an ambassador for him, he had a reason to have them get it right. And he had a reason to write Timothy. And now, as Paul's apostolic delegate, the, the weight and the bulk of the responsibility would, no, would now fall on this young pastor who was trained up, who was a child in the faith from the apostle Paul. And now he could feel the heavy weight of the burden of making sure that the gospel would be central. I remember that moment as a young man coming into ministry, having been given and slow measures, levels of delegated authority from other leadership in the church, saying, hey, why don't you uh, teach this Sunday school class for children? Oh, I don't know. Why don't you teach junior church now? Oh man, those kids look like they hate me. Then all the way up to, well, you know, I think you should, you should try to teach youth. I remember going away when the first time that I taught a youth class, looking at my wife going, I am never going back. I am never going back there. So you should have a lot of appreciation for Pastor Andy is what I'm saying. Week in and week out. Then I remember various components of other leadership that was delegated in responsibility that they would say, you know what, I, I think you're ready for this. I remember that moment when all my professors and a number of pastors from around sat in our auditorium uh, at my ordination and I saw all of these, uh, what, I, what I understood as stalwart Christians of the faith, who had been grounded for years, who had taught me theology, who helped me understand living the Christian life, are now asking and grilling me questions for over two hours because there was a purpose by which they invested in me. 
that they would say, what you're about to embark on, Josh, what you're about to do is to be a full representative and leader in the, in, in the church of Jesus Christ. And we don't take this lightly. And I can remember that moment where I, I became the lead pastor for the first time of a church and feeling the weight that week of thinking, I can't deviate from the truth, not one bit. The moment I deviate from the truths of the scripture, I have a whole bunch of people that may, if, if I'm not careful, follow me into that deviation. And perhaps they would do it because, well, he loves me. Yes, I love and so should Timothy and so should every elder, but every church member has the responsibility to be doctrinally orientated enough so that no matter who speaks from God's word and from whatever context from which they speak, there is, there is an accountability to our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we are speaking the gospel that is, is about saving people, not the gospel that's just about making people feel good. Timothy bore the weight. Paul predicted this in Acts chapter 20 when he would say things to the Ephesian elders such as, care for the church of God. And then he, he adds this, which he obtained by his blood. Fellow elders who are here this morning who bear that same weight of responsibility, this ought to be heavy on your shoulders. Anyone who believes they aspire to the office of a pastor and an elder, you should feel the level of weight that you are serving and caring for and called to not deviate from the gospel of Jesus Christ, which he purchased with his own blood. It immediately elevates the level of responsibility. He calls them, he calls these elders, protect the sheep from the wolves who are among you. Be concerned with the flock and be concerned with the godliness that resides in your own soul. He says the wolves that are going to come out, he says in Acts 20 to these Ephesian elders, they're gonna, they're gonna come and they're gonna speak twisted things. And I wonder if some of those elders after that particular entreaty by Paul would kind of walk away and think, I don't know. I mean, I don't see it now, but not us. I think we'll protect ourselves from that. And only to find that then Paul writes a letter saying, now's the time. This is exactly what I was telling you. Someone is speaking twisted things and you must unravel them so that they are untwisted and there is a clarity for the sake of the gospel. But he doesn't just talk about speaking the truth on a pulpiteering level. Paul says, elders, he said, I modeled for you what it looked like to admonish the flock. I went from house to house, relationship to relationship, and wherever they, there might be a doctrinal deviation, we're gonna try to correct it in grace and truth and speak the truth in love. We have got to be committed to the church that Jesus obtained and purchased by his own blood. And elders and fellow elders here and those who aspire to this, this office, I would challenge you as Paul challenges Timothy. Know the gospel of Jesus Christ because he continues when he says, at this, uh, th at this level of urgency, when Paul left to go to Macedonia, he said to Timothy, it's now your responsibility. I need you to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And I don't know how Timothy may have felt at that particular moment because he knew the Ephesian church. He had been with Paul when all of these circumstances in the church was planted. Luke records that. And, and I can only imagine the weight that Timothy would have felt at that moment, like, Timothy, uh, there's a whole lot of doctrinal deviation going down there, and I choose you to fix it. Like, uh, maybe somebody else on the team wants to go. But reluctantly, perhaps, he, he, would, he would come even as a young man, and we see a level of reluctance in the book of 1 Timothy. 
based upon his age and based upon thinking, can I do this right? And am I able to be in, in, in this delegated responsibility? Could you imagine the experience of having to, to, to pastor and be in the shadow of the great apostle Paul? Like that is not a situation that I wanna be in. I can remember that when I first came here and, and uh, we were starting to think about these scenarios and Dr. Bruce Ware from Southern Seminary was teaching and I pulled up the church and I thought, well, I wanna see who they have her teaching and Dr. Ware is there and I've read all kinds of books of his. And then, and then I realized that I was the next Sunday. It's like, this is not good. This is not good, not one bit. Because I so appreciate this man's faithfulness to the presentation of the gospel and the influence on the evangelical Christian community. There often is a reluctance every time that an individual, whether it's Pastor Ben or myself, there is an internal reluctancy recognizing that we are handling the very words of the living God of heaven and earth that he has called us to do a thing that in and of ourselves, and he has called you to do a thing that in and of yourself is impossible, to understand the very words of the living God. And so he has given you the gift of the Holy Spirit who has sealed you and draws you to and guides you to the truth of this almighty God. Timothy is called to, to, to stay there and he is called to do something where it says, he, he says, Timothy, I want to charge you with something. And you know, we look at this and I really want you to think that this is a very military terminology. Paul is saying to Timothy, I am commanding you, get down there and you've got to straighten this doctrinal diversion out. People's eternal existence in Christ is at stake from this. He commands them, he urges them that certain people, these false teachers, and about the only expression that we get, and this is one of the challenges as you interpret one of the uh, epistles in the New Testament, and you get, uh, you grapple with a question like, well, what exactly was the Ephesian heresy? What was going around percolating and being talked about in the homes and in the synagogue and in the churches and in the community? It's really difficult sometimes to begin to get a understanding of who these false teachers were. And most commentators cannot fully put their finger on exactly every single dimension of who they were. But we know about what they teach because that's what Paul addresses to Timothy. Notice this though, here's what we can know. When it says there are certain people, it is in the masculine plural. There were men who Paul even predicted, who are in the upper echelon of leadership, perhaps overseers of the Ephesian church, those who were in leadership positions, and they were, were men because this is the, the reality of how God has designed the church to function, and all of a sudden, they're teaching a different doctrine. We don't know exactly how many men but we know that there was a significant amount enough to cause a stir to divert people away from the true gospel. And, and it describes their false teaching as this element, and he uses these words, tells certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, Paul is, is kind of uh, unique in the way he will often use the original language. And in one sense right here, in the word different doctrine, Paul seems to use one word that is never used anywhere else, but he, he, he puts together two particular Greek words. The first, the preposition is heteros, and the other section is teaching. And he mushes them together and he describes this. Now, if you understand what that means, this preposition is a teaching of a different kind a teaching of a different substance, a teaching that is from a different origin, a teaching that comes from somewhere that you are, should not be familiar with because you are familiar with one gospel and one truth and it was passed to you from, not, from Jesus Christ down through the apostles and it was consistent with all the prophets of old and all the Old Testament. This different 
this teaching of a different kind was the false doctrine, was the way he expresses the reality of urgency. And I would ask you again, do you know the gospel of Jesus Christ enough to be able to say to someone who would come to you and say to you, I want to be saved. I want to enter into heaven. How do I get there? You should know. There's something about each and every one of us that we begin to understand and that we embraced about who we are and what our need is. And you know what it is? And this is so unpopular today. We're sinners. But we're not just sinners in the sense that we do bad things at different times. We are sinners who are so sinful that have no ability on our own at whatsoever moment of our life from birth and onward that we would ever come to a point where we would want to choose to follow Jesus Christ on our own. That's us. That's all of us who have to come to an embracing that as a sinner, there is a need that, that only God can fi fulfill that is outside of you. It is not inside of you. You can't die for your own sins. Jesus, however, was willing to die for the sins of the entirety of the world so that all of us would have that available to us so that we could then look at his righteousness and we could look upon him who was pierced on our behalf, who was beaten and bruised so that we could have life by repenting and turning to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. But it doesn't only stop there, does it? Because the gospel is not just about you, it's, not, it's about how Jesus resolved the issue that is within your heart, which was sin. But he does it in such a gracious way. Please, if you're here and you're an unbeliever and you've never embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ or thought about your need as a sinner, don't just hear Jesus' words of condemnation. Hear the words of the good shepherd who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Aren't you tired of perhaps waking up every morning, living every week, going through every day, wondering what the purpose of your life is, knowing that there is, a, there is a weight and heaviness about who you are. You know that you're a sinner, but you don't know what the solution. Can I, can I beg you this morning? The solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That solution is yours if you humble yourself today and you repent of your sin and you turn and you listen to the call of this God-man Jesus Christ who is the son of God, who sent, who sent his own son to die for you so that you could be saved. That is so kind. It's the kindest thing I think anybody could have ever done for me. It'd be willing to die in my place, to give to me what I never deserve. You can have that. The gospel cannot be diverted from. And part of the reason why this is so important, because if you teach a different gospel and you divert attention away from the true gospel, you know what happens to people who listen to a false gospel? They go to hell. Forever. That is the ultimate reality. They are in eternal separation from the living Christ who has come and so graciously offered himself on their behalf and all they would need to do is repent and be saved and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but make no mistake, this is not some easy believism reality. You must turn to him for the forgiveness of your sins. You cannot do this on your own. I couldn't do this on my own. But if I believe in a different gospel, it will not save me. 
Now we can begin to understand the urgency to Timothy from the apostle Paul. Get down there. People's lives eternally are at stake. And these people are diverting them to a gospel that will send them straight to hell. That's why he comes in a very strong way to say, I urge you, I charge you, I command you, please tell them not to speak this different doctrine. And I commit to you, chapel body, that the elders here are as committed to the grace and truth in love to not to try to, to not ever want to deviate or desire to deviate from that truth of the gospel and members of the chapel, we ought to hold one another accountable to this gospel. It is not mine, it is not the elders, it is Jesus Christ. It is his alone. What kind of different gospel is this that was going on? Well, they were devoting themselves in this different doctrine is now described. And he's saying they're devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. There's this reality in the life of the people that all of a sudden their diversion from the very components of Jesus Christ and the gospel was moved away from things that were evident in the apostle Paul to simply say, you're focusing on myths. You're focusing on various components that don't lead people to the truth. Now, one of the realities of this myth orientation and this, this differing of the gospel, and we see it in our culture today. In fact, in many ways, as we, as we walk through the teaching of the gospel and we see its impact, we see culture and generation after generation move in different facets of their life in different veins of the gospel. We live in what often people understood as a postmodern culture where, every, where truth is relative to everybody in this room. You can have a truth and you can have a truth and back here can have a truth and you all can have a truth and everyone over here can have a truth. And there's all of a sudden a scenario where we wonder what truth is God's truth anyway. It's dangerous. And now we have moved outside of even a postmodern type philosophy that we now have shades of this into a philosophy where it is mystic. There is this mystical reality that I want to feel certain things in certain ways at certain times. And our culture who is already bent towards a feeling orientation is so fixated oftentimes on that mythical mystic gospel. I recognize this, uh, I recognize this is true because at various components, I hear and read various people say things like, you know what, I'm going to a Christian yoga class. Christian yoga? Eastern mysticism? We can't allow the, the, the syncretization of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be mixed with any other kind of mystical reality. And in the process of this, he says they're focusing on myth. And you know what I would say? Here's a, here's a, a, a danger that we have to stay away from and a, and a red flag that should come up in our interpretation of the Bible. So often a, a myth and a wrong divergent gospel comes from interpretations that are allegorical primarily. You just begin to symbolize whatever you think is going on instead of checking it by the larger content of the gospel. I've seen it over and over again in various components. And as a believer, I beg you, as you read the Bible, there is a literal interpretation that will not guide you into myth and genealogies. Now, what is the genealogies? I don't know. I have looked in commentary after commentary and there is all kinds of perspective of what this is. Here's what we do know. There is a kind of Jewish flavor of these genealogies that these false teachers were succumbing to and saying, you know what? And we know there's all kinds of genealogical components in the Old Testament. 
And in some way, these teachers were building myth and genealogy into their divergent gospel and saying, you know what? I know Jesus is this, but think about all this and all of these genealogies. And that's where we're going to find security. I am so thankful that from a genealogical standpoint that we recognize that it's not the sins of my father, it's not the sins of my mother, it's not the sins of my grandparents, it's not the sins of my great-grandparents that keep me from being saved and understanding the gospel. Jesus wants me to be accountable to what I know about who I am as a sinner and where salvation is offered from. These false teachers who are now building a foundation of myth and endless genealogies, which, and he adds this statement, which promotes speculation. Have you ever been around people who are just infatuated with some kind of a speculative reality and philosophy? And they, you know, it, it often signs accompanies like that guy who's like, so have you thought about this? And somebody says, no, like that's a good point. You know, because you think about how this works in our culture. Not so long ago, a very popular book called The Da Vinci Code built on a Gnostic set of gospels that presented Jesus as married and all of these other divergent ways in which the Gnostic gospels represented a false Jesus that is not the Jesus of the New Testament. And have you thought about? And so many people went, well, I, I haven't, but that's an interesting point. And they were led astray to a very different view of Jesus. It moved them. And the word for this idea of promoting speculation, when you look and understand it, is often the interpretation. The word isn't added here in the text, but it's this, useless speculation. You, you spend hours and hours, hours of philosophical contemplation. And at the end of the day, hours a day, you come to the end of it and you go, Hmm, that was just interesting. And that's all it was. It didn't save, it didn't guide you to a gospel, it didn't lead you to Christian living, it was just there. And that's what Paul says about this divergent gospel. It leads people away from the genuine true gospel, it is useless in its speculation. What that tells us is people of the word of God. Can you do this? Believe and anchor your conviction that this book and this book alone is your authority for living. It is the book, the only book that gives you a way to live a Christian life that is successful, that your immaterial man can be can be moved towards godliness. Do you know the only book that will do that for you is the Bible? The moment I get outside of believing in the authority and sufficiency of the Bible, I, be, I begin to begin to be, to be in, uh, influenced by various components of useless speculation on some way or another. It's not about what man thinks. Our lives must be constituted by what God thinks. And the only way to know what God thinks about whatever he thinks about is right here. But don't you have those moments as a Christian, as an interpreter, as a Bible student, that you honestly say something like this, I wish God would have said something about this. And then you kind of get off into tangents. Like, well, I mean, maybe he thinks this, or maybe he thinks that. But at the end of the day, can I, can I call you just to come back to the simple truths of believing in the authority of God, using it as a, your sufficient source for life, and faith in this world and moving aside from all of these other humanistic philosophies and secular methods that don't guide you back to what God says. Even all kinds of authors are only as valuable as the degree to which they point you to the truth of what God says. If you go into a Christian bookstore, please, Christian, be mindful that not everything is as Christian as you think it is. 
I have read countless number of Christian books that have very little connection with the truth of God's word and draw you to a, a, a stated text and purpose where th these truths originate from. Be mindful. He says, these myths and endless genealogies which promote this useless speculation, they don't end up with anything. They end up, in a sense, damning people to hell. They don't teach them the truth. And here's what they even do further. In fact, what he's saying, these teachers, by, by all of the things that they're doing, rather than doing this, living by the stewardship that is from God, that is by faith. What he's saying to these false teachers who are in a leadership role is that this idea of stewardship, you given the opportunity to influence people on a leadership level, now you're taking your role and you're using it in ways that are not bringing glory to God. He says, shame on you teachers. You should never be looking at this in this way. You should be looking at your position as a stewardship that originated from God ordaining you to do the work of the ministry. We know how God thinks from the book of 1 Peter 5, how elders should, should be people who are not doing things for filthy gain. And yet what we find in Timothy that I think that these false teachers were so infatuated with this divergent teaching, but it was motivated from a different source. And here he says, you need to remember that this stewardship that was, that was allowed of you, this is something of God and it is something that is about faith. It is a stewardship from God that is by faith. What that tells us is anybody who leads at any le at level of stewardship, whether it's an elder or a Christian, your stewardship is done by faith. Which means it's not about you. It's about faith in someone else and what he said and how you can draw the attention to that. It's this life lived filled with trusting God. Christian, is your life filled that way? Do you trust and is your mark of your Christian life there in a way that is trusting the living God? When we think about these particular challenges, you'll notice that as we, we consider these, that the central aim of the Christian life is to live a life of love and to speak the truth in love. This is why this divergent gospel it's so terrible in the eyes of Paul, and now Timothy has to stop it and urge them, stop teaching this particular gospel. Because the challenge and the reality of this truth was something that when we get it wrong, it has eternal implications. Christians, if all of a sudden all that you promote is some easy believism, and somebody who comes to Christ and, and they, they don't repent of their sins and they don't trust for the, in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, we don't know what they're trusting in. If all of a sudden they just say, well, that looks like a nice group of people. They're super nice. It's not about the kindness of the people. It's about the kindness of the Savior who wants you to be part of his family. And this truth, as we look at these various components of this challenge, we see the dynamic here for Paul's urgency. Live by faith. Christians, are you living by faith? This idea of a stewardship from God that is by faith is the expression with the underlying reality that Christians trust regularly in the words and practice the things that the living God tells us to practice. Just think back at your last week of your life. Ask yourself, where is it that you were directed or tempted or challenged to live by a different set of priorities? Do you trust God in the midst of illness? Do you trust God in the midst of difficulty? Do you trust God in the midst of things that will happen outside your control? The issue of a stewardship that comes from God is a life that is lived by faith. 
And we are all called to live it in the community of believers, the church, together to spur one another on to love and good works. But it comes and it is initiated and maintained by faith. You don't just start and you need Jesus Christ for your initial justification. You need him for all of your sanctification. And you can't just say, well, I need you now and then I'll keep myself saved by doing all these good things. That's legalism. That's legalistic sanctification. The gospel saves once and for all and that gospel initiated work through justification is carried out to completion till the day of Christ Jesus is what Paul says in Philippians 1.6. He will complete you, which means you don't have to be so concerned about trying to complete you. Your job and my job is to go to the word that is sufficient and authoritative to allow it to complete us as we humble ourselves to its instruction. And we say, okay, I'll do it, even when it's difficult. Are you doing that, Christian? Are you living in that kind of way? Because I'll tell you what, don't think for one minute that evangelical churches all across the world are somehow not susceptible to a divergent doctrine. If we don't stay fixed on the gospel of Jesus Christ, we could be led astray into something that sounds mythical and genealogical or philosophical or whatever other worldview you want to live by at the expense of eternity in heaven. And it's interesting because these false teachers who came from the midst of them appeared to have fooled everyone in the Ephesian church. And they fooled them to such a degree that they were elevated to a position of authority. And now Paul says they're not even teaching the gospel. And I'm not so foolish as to think that that idea or that perspective couldn't happen here. Which means how do we guard ourselves? We know the gospel we be people of the book. we be people who know how to live the Christian life and, and, and call out divergent gospel orientation wherever it is found in the church. Now here's this charge. I think this is so instructive to us. The aim of our charge is love that is issued from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now this, this trilogy of things that are that are sourced in love. He says, Timothy, the charge that I give to you, now just think about the weight of this. These people are sending people to hell from a different gospel that doesn't save. Timothy, you need to love them enough to confront them. But if you confront them out of anger, if you try to match their philosophical components and you try to do all of these things, but if your heart is filled with some angry component, you know, breaking into the assembly and saying, get out of here, money changers. It must come from a heart of love. Even Jesus's response of turning over the money changers table was out of love. It's hard for us to wrap our mind around the reality when we hear hard truths said to us, that that person, we don't walk away right from those conversations when somebody has to confront us or rebuke us. And, and sometimes people say, say it in such a way with such a tone that we don't walk away going, they love me. I'm so thankful for them. That is the call to Timothy. Timothy loved them enough to speak the truth in love. And that whole statement of speaking the truth in love, by the way, is found in Ephesians 4. In the set of making sure of Ephesians 4.11 that he gave some to be apostles and prophets and some pastors and teachers to do what? To equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And so do what? Speak the truth in love. And he's even saying rebuke in a way that is loving. And he's calling them to an agape kind of love. That is the word that is used here. This self-sacrificial component. This way that you would say, Brothers, this is terrible. 
I can't let you do this anymore for the sake of the gospel. I love you. Turn from your wicked teaching. You know, all the, all the law and the gospels hang on love, don't they? Jesus said that in Matthew 22 when asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two things, love God and love others. True love is the confrontation of false teaching and false Christian living. So often as a pastor, as a congregation, we may be called to call out false Christianity and false teaching. And when we do it, it should be said of us that we do it in a way that is filled and displays the love of God, an urgency of John 3, 16, because God loved the world enough to send his own son so that we could be saved. This display of God's love is not the absence of confrontation, but it's how, it's the attitude of how we confront. And this love, this self-sacrificial component, I know many, many people, when it comes to conflict, who, who just all of a sudden get their soul so wrapped up in anxiety and fear, like, oh my goodness, I'm gonna have to tell somebody something. Like, I don't know anybody who doesn't have some level of anxiety with that. But if we allow that anxiety to keep us from telling people what the truth says and call them to a kind of living that is gospel orientated, we're in trouble. Because then we'll just allow love not to speak truth because we want to be known as loving people. Or we'll speak the truth so harshly that they'll wonder if we genuinely love them. There is a balance of both that must be sought after in the, Christian, in, in the Christian community. And that's how Timothy was supposed to display it to these false teachers. Love them with a pure heart. Notice this trilogy. This heart of self-sacrificial love that is sourced in three things. He's not saying it's the only three, but he highlights these three. Love that is from a pure heart. The idea of purity is the idea of ceremonial washing. The idea that comes from the Old Testament language. A heart that when you go before God is free from guilt, it's clean. That's what love is. That when, when he would go before these false teachers, he could genuinely say, I love you enough to tell you what's wrong. And I'm free from you, from being, standing in guilt before God, that I'm doing something wrong on your behalf because you might think this might be mean. No, in fact, it's, it's, it's a, it's a love that comes from a pure heart. And the idea of heart is the seat of all of who you are. It is the intellect, the affections, and the will. It's a purity at the deepest level of who you are as a person. But it doesn't stop there. It's a love that is, that is characterized by pure heart and a good conscience. Well, what is that? Well, the conscience is that very common thing, common grace that has been given to you by God to all image bearers, believing and unbelieving. It is that moral compass to a degree that is written on the heart. That's what Romans 2.15 says. That the law of God is written on people's hearts. And he says here, it's filled, love is filled with a good conscience, which what that means is it's, it's, a, it's an inner awareness of what is morally right and morally wrong. It's like, do you see a need for that understanding of gospel, heart-centered awareness in the culture that we have to determine what is actually morally right and wrong, especially when we watch the news? There's, this is an absolute necessity. It's the conscience that all of a sudden leads that child who stole the cookie from the cookie jar to be hiding in the closet. And all of a sudden having the door shut going, I hope they don't find me. And they're picking every crumb off their, off their shirt because they enjoy it because they know there's something wrong. That's your conscience. He said a good conscience is calibrated morally by the truths of God's word. What does the conscience do for you? It serves a purpose and it does two things. I want you to think about this because this is how it functions in your life. It either commends you or condemns you. That's what it does for you. It commends you, it leads you and cheers you on, or it condemns you. When you do wrong, the truth of God that is written on your heart, that you understand from the scripture, it condemns you if you're wrong, but it, it encourages you and comforts you when you're right. And the more that we listen 
and we don't sear our conscience, which is possible, we won't listen to it, we won't have the kind of good conscience, this moral, morally right calibrated conscience that will help us live the Christian life. And it's got to come from a sincere faith. And the reality of this word is without hypocrisy. You and I cannot be one person out there and then, and then demonstrate a different person in here. God sees who we are and how we live. You and I will never escape from the eyes of the almighty God. This life that is lived in hypocrisy is now fleshed out in the remaining components that these persons, having swerved away from the truth and noticed their motivation that is now revealed, they have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make such confident assertions. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, love them in such a way that draws them back from swerving away from the truth. Yes, these men that we've invested, people like Alexander and Hymenaeus that he talks about later on in the book, who had, who had invested their lives and are now believing this divergent gospel because they think they know something about the law, but they don't have an idea about what they're saying. Timothy, help them understand how to have a right interpretation. Bring them to the truth of God's word. Help them abandon that reality so that they can live a life of confidence and comfort and the peace of God by faith and be a good steward that came from God. And he calls Timothy, then he says in this next section that we'll come to against these false teachers, he begins to explain why the law is so good. Because they were treating it in a way that wasn't supposed to be treated. And now Paul is going to turn. And through instruction to Timothy, he's going to say, let's talk about the law since they want to talk about the law. And let's shore up a couple of things so that we aren't tempted on one bit to believe that the law is bad. But let's see how it serves its purpose in God's whole economy of this age. So that as we live a stewardship of our lives that we live by this one central aim in the course of our life. We are to love God, love others, and speak the truth in love. Brothers and sisters, know the gospel. Live out the gospel. Share the gospel. Be willing to speak the truth to those perhaps who are believing a different gospel. But when you do it, do it with love. Do it with kindness and do it filled with grace so that they can see Christ in you and know that this is the kind of gospel and person I want to follow. The one who has the answers, who's there to comfort me and will guide me through the rest of my life. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, the gospel of Jesus Christ is so precious to us because it comes from you. It was sent by a heavenly father who looked down on the needs of humanity knowing that we would be lost for eternity had he not been willing to send his one and only son and that that son would, would be willing to humble himself to be able to save people who were gonna be lost for eternity. Lord, we're forever indebted to that gospel. Lord, please keep us strong in a culture that often seems to have so many mythical and philosophical components to it that people are drawn to. Lord, that we here at the chapel and every Christian that is here today would be a person who embraces the inspiration and authority and sufficiency of your truth, not just for information but for our transformation into Christ-likeness. Lord, help us with that. In your name we pray, amen.